Hello, hello. Welcome to the Smoko Podcast. My name is Alexis Armstrong, your host. The Smoko Podcast is a place to celebrate and highlight women working within STEM and trade occupations. Today, we are extremely lucky to be joined by Dr. Jean Hutchinson. Dr. Hutchinson is a professor and past department head of the Geological Sciences and Geological Engineering department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. She has over 25 years of experience within teaching and research. Her specialty is geologic engineering and rock mechanics, specifically risk management of mining and transportation. So we're looking at mining subsidy and slope stability. She does loads of work for CP and CN Rail. Her specialty is in landslides and discovering new novel monitoring techniques to discover these. These techniques include really crazy things like LIDAR and deep learning and machine learning, and just, it's so cool. So, Jean, thank you so much for coming out today. It's an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Alexis. Fabulous to see you again. What a great idea. Thank you for doing this. I think the more stories that we can hear from women in our field, the better off we are. So thank you for doing this. This It's great. No, it's my pleasure, Jean. Thank you so much for having you. It's so nice to see you again. Me and Jean, we met back in 2013, which sounds like ages ago now or just yesterday when I was a grad student at Queen's University. So it's an honor to have you. And I think one of the coolest things, Jean, was doing all my research before. I read a bunch of your papers. A lot of it was outside of my scope and my knowledge base. But one of the coolest things that I found and I discovered along the way was this interview you gave back in the day before you became a professor at the University of Waterloo. And you talked about this kind of serendipitous moment in your life where after your undergrad, you were all gung-ho, ready to go into oil and gas. And then due to the economics, you ended up, of 84, you ended up pivoting and working for the Ontario Ministry of Transportation and Communication in Construction Management. And that pivot, that like serendipitous moment, led to both a MSc and a PhD in geotechnical engineering and now 25 years of teaching and research. Could you walk us through this change and how you fell in love with the field of geotechnical engineering? It's amazing you found that old interview. I didn't even remember it still existed. (laughs) But yeah, so when I did my undergraduate, there were jobs in the oil and gas sector, which was really interesting. I found them fascinating and got to do some really interesting work in those days with trying to reconcile the geological models that were being used to develop, in particular, tertiary oil recovery in those days. I was fully set for a career in oil and gas and moving to Calgary. And then, as you said, the downturn in 1984 occurred and there were no jobs. So in those days, pre-internet, you mailed all your applications out to people that you hoped for an interview by mail or by phone. And I sent out 200 resumes in my fourth year. 200, yeah, and, and got nothing. Nothing because of the downturns. And I was not only focused on oil and gas, I was looking for geotech. And it was just a very poor time to to come out of of school at that time. So the Ministry of Transportation was hiring for the first time in quite a while. But they hired 10 new engineers in that training engineering program, which led me into all sorts of great stuff. I got to work in the field in managing construction crews, which is remarkable to think about one year out of school doing that. My second summer, I was in charge of a full construction project to add ramps to the 401. I was the boss and it was a crazy thing to get thrown into and an amazing learning opportunity. But I also realized that there was not a lot of opportunity, at least in the field-based work for innovation and change. It was very much a well-established procedure. The materials were known and the construction methods were known. And so there was no reason for there to be a great deal of innovation in it at that time. And I thought, no, I want to do something a little different. So 
Then I applied to graduate school and went to University of Alberta for my master's. Phenomenal. The professors there, the courses there, the students there, everything was amazing. I learned so much there. And I'd always thought, well, I'll go back and work for a while before I decide whether I want to do a PhD. But there was an opportunity at that point to work with the person who basically started rock mechanics. He had a five-year appointment in a chair position at University of Toronto. And I met him at a conference just close to the end of my master's. And he said there were opportunities. So instead of going back to work, I moved back to University of Toronto and worked with Dr. Everett Hook, who is the grandfather of basically rock mechanics for most of us. Again, a phenomenal opportunity. I just had amazing experiences in the field, in the courses, meeting many people who came through University of Toronto to visit him. The big names in our field were all coming through Toronto to visit with him and give lectures and got to meet all those people. Again, phenomenal exposure. It's amazing to hear all those things and learn all those things. So that pivot because of the oil and gas sector was just amazing in terms of the broadening of opportunities that it gave me. In my master's, I worked more on degrading permafrost and foundations in permafrost. And then in my PhD, I designed an instrumentation program at a mine and monitored the behavior of support systems in a mine. Through those first yeah. formative years, I had such a wide range of opportunities and experiences. It was amazing. Gina, that's fantastic. But I also think, too, it's so interesting is that you're like, oh, it's all serendipitous and it's all this like crazy luck that happened, too, without, I think, giving yourself credit to how fantastic your research was. Like you were managing construction, be like, oh, yeah, first year out of undergrad. You're 23 years old, 22 at that point. <laughs> yeah. To be a yeah. boss at that level of a full construction point at 23, 24 is incredible to be that type of person. And then to run a full mine program and also to do your research up north and to be able to have that opportunity with the founder of Rock Mechanics is huge and so wonderful. I have the philosophy that every point in my career, in my life, and later on, once I got married to Mark and we had our kids, every point of decision making there were always multiple opportunities, and I always felt that whichever one we picked would be amazing. So it just happened to be the way we did things. When we first got married, the first sort of opportunity of doing something together, it'll be more focused on my career. And then the second one will be more focused on his career. Who knows? I probably would have had a stellar career in the oil and gas sector as well if that had been the direction. It's worked out beautifully. It's just so many amazing people along the way who've helped out. The one story I do have about being in, in charge of a construction project was when I first arrived, for obvious reasons, all of the very experienced inspectors for the Ministry of Transportation on the highway construction project said, who's this person and why are they here telling us what to do? Fully understand why they were asking that. And so at some point I had phoned the, my direct supervisor from the Stratford office and said, could you come out to the site for just a day or two and just help me out here? And then after that, it was no more problem. But he really understood that situation, as did I. Who am I to tell them what to do? Of course, it worked out really well in the end, but there was that little challenge. And that was the first, without me really realizing what it meant, the first allyship in that workplace that I had. So that was also really important. I'm happy you brought that up because it is so important to have those early career mentors. And it's something that when you're that young, you just think that he's your boss and he's helping you out and he's doing the right thing. And then when you get a little bit older, you're like, oh, no, 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 he was standing up for me. And the reason why... Yeah. I got that challenge. One, our safety gear doesn't help us. When I wear the safety gear, I look like an eight-year-old with a cord. You know what I mean? It's huge. On oh, like, like I just, I don't really look like a commanding figure. But <laughs> sorry for laughing. There's so that that's the case for so many women. <laughs> you just yeah. look like who brought their child to work day to day? Like, I don't yeah, know if it's a thing. 
but it is a gender challenge. And so it's so important to have that early mentorship. What's so wonderful, because I know you personally, I know how much you've impacted my friends and peers and colleagues. And oh, thank you. You've passed that on. Yes, you've had these wonderful people that gave you opportunities, but you've passed it on in spades. So it's oh, thank you for saying that. That's lovely. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. It's the truth. <laughs> The next one is maybe taking a little bit of a step back before we go full nerd out and full ge geology is your research within GeoEng. It's specific to ground hazards. So it's including mine subsidence and slope stability. And it's really a focus on the assessment and management of geomechanic hazards. Could you kind of explain what is the geomechanic hazard? What does this actually entail? And how has the specialty changed with time and technology? So First off, those types of hazards are things that we focus on because they will impact something of importance to us. So in my case, railway infrastructure or communities below landslides or open pit mines where there's potential for instability of the rock or soil to impact that operation. So that's sort of why we focus on it. The hazards themselves are all either natural or induced by human change to the environment. A natural rock slope will, over time, generally produce a series of different failures, maybe small, maybe big. But those hazards are things that move, of course, by gravity downslope and then can impact what's at the bottom. And in the open pit mining case, you have the same challenge, but human activity by creating that mine is accelerating the rate of change. And therefore, you have much more frequent and sometimes quite large volume failures that happen. So the source is always a geological environment and a geological set of faults and shears and structure and different things in the rock mass that make it susceptible to fail under gravity. And then on top of that, we have all the influences like rainfall and snowfall and in particular in climate change, increasing levels of that in certain environments too. So those are the geohazards, things moving down slope. So that's on the kind of geomechanics side. But one of my really big research projects over the years has been the Railway Ground Hazard Research Program, which is a compilation of University of Alberta professors and people from Queens, as well as students at both institutions working with CN Rail and CP and also Transport Canada and the Geological Survey of Canada. So a very big research team that's been going for, I think, 18 years now. With that research program, we've been able to see the ways that people who cover 10,000 kilometers of track in their daily job have been able to take on new technologies to support them, who can take on new ideas and ways to, to support the work that they do. But the hazards themselves are going to be occurring. It's just how do we interact with them? And then from a risk side, how can we try and mitigate them? And how can we protect against them? So those are the sort of focuses of both the geology and the engineering in terms of that world. That was a wonderful description of it. And I think it is very clear. One question of risk management, is it mostly prediction based of being like where on the slope will fail? Or is it after the fact of trying to minimize that slope itself? So putting up like buttresses or putting up like some sort of protection against that? Or is it mostly prediction based? That's a great question. And I think it's evolved over my career. So Part of the motivation, in fact, for this Railway Ground Hazard Research Program was to try and become more proactive and predictive, because up till that point, it was very much a reactive environment. Again, with the two railway companies, they have 40,000 kilometers of track across Canada, so an enormous area to cover. 
when I first started in this research program, they were working with more qualitative assessments where they would say, been a bunch of failures here and here and maybe not so many in these locations. So let's focus our efforts where we've seen failures. And they would do inspections. They still do inspections to look and see where they could observe potential future instabilities to forewarn in that regard. So if they could see from a helicopter inspection or a high rail inspection, something that was going to happen, they would do what you just said, put a buttress or scale it down, remove it, or put in mesh to protect it. Over time with this research project and the evolution in the industry that's been happening at the same time, we've been able to take remote sensing techniques so that we can sense the change in the slope on a regular basis. And we can see very small deformations well before any failure is going to occur. So that now gives us the basis for doing a much more network wide analysis of potential for instability and the ability to try and think about forewarning. But one of the big challenges from a geological perspective is one rock might deform a few centimeters and fail. One rock might deform tens of centimeters or in the open pit case, meters before there's failure. And so that geological interpretation is still really something we're thinking about. And it does something that's changing an inch a year or a centimeter a year matter or does something is changing 10 meters a year matter. It's really, that's the part that's still really fascinating and needs the geological component to that work. Because like with geology, like even if you look at one outcrop, it can change on a centimeter scale, let alone like a meter scale. And if you're dealing with all across Canada, I think you said 40K of track, that is a lot of heterogeneity of geology and different environments too, with different weather patterns, different permafrost, different Climate change is going to affect every single area a little bit differently as well. There's just so much to go to it, but it's very cool that now we're moving towards a predictive model and using that model potentially on different areas or different fields. There's a lot of evolution in our ability to work with those big data sets and build them into databases to really help inform our work. But one of the things I've seen uh, a deep dive into some of these techniques of working with these large data sets, which sometimes forget about the geology and the variability you're talking about. And one of the things that I always say is, particularly to my very excited computer savvy grad students, we still have to keep the geology in mind, right? So we always have to keep that geological model in mind. Mm -hmm. And that helps us, as you just said, kind of partition up the different areas into these might behave in a certain way and they're like something 10 kilometers away. And then this area might behave like something somewhere else. Once we make those connections, we can learn from one site to the next. But that's a big amount of data and a big database. And I think that's one of our challenges is how do we collaborate across all the data sets? How do we make them available across all the data sets, particularly with private companies? Sometimes that's not so easy. How do we really make the best out of those data sets without over promising and over committing to things, patterns that we see? So I'm a little cautious in that regard. <laughs> you probably, oh. Maybe probably because of my age. I think caution is probably really good. I probably would be one of those young like grad students that'd be like, but Ooh. I created the perfect model yeah. that I love that took me <laughs> 10 years of my life to create this model. Yes, I forgot to label any type of rock or give it a rock name, but that's fine. We don't need it. It's a beautiful model, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's really cool that we have that data set, but data sets in itself are fantastic. But it comes with a whole other challenge of how do we read it, how we do minimize bias, and then how do we make it publicly available and talk between private companies. And maybe that this is going to get us into the next one. Maybe it's data and data sets. But the next question is, what is the biggest hot button issue of geomechanics? And what's something that maybe if you're not a geological engineer, if you're in the public, 
where would you start to be like, this is the most important thing for me to learn? That's a really great question. And it's a fairly hard one to answer, I would say, because it, it, there's a lot of challenges. In general, the big challenge facing society of climate change also impacts geomechanics. How do we understand the potential for further instability associated with these changing climates? And that can range from drought through to more extreme precipitation, more frequent precipitation. All ranges of those different responses, as you said earlier, that happen in different environments in fact, have an impact on natural slope, particularly geomechanics. So last summer, there were unprecedented droughts in the UK and on the eastern coast of England on what they call the Jurassic Coast. Because of that drought, the rock masses were drying out in a way they never had before, and that was leading to failures. We usually think about it the other way around, where there's yeah. a lot more water and it leads to instabilities. But in England last summer, those instabilities were associated with that extreme heat and drying. So on both ends of the spectrum of what ha might happen in climate change or is happening in climate change, we're seeing an impact in terms of geomechanics. So from a geomechanics perspective, understanding that is certainly a key component, but even more at the risk basis, at the risk level is really important. How do we spend money where if we had unlimited budgets, we would be spending money everywhere. We don't. We have to be realistic about where we spend money and how we think about infrastructure and how we think about instability in terms of long-term planning, long-term work, long-term design. The other case example that some of my students are working on right now is the events on the west coast of Canada in the fall of 2021 with the atmospheric rivers. Yeah. And those atmospheric rivers were, were these big rainstorm rain patterns that come off the Pacific Ocean onto the west coast of Canada and North America. And they dump a huge amount of rain in a very short period of time. Normally by November in the fall, there's maybe one or two of those. But in the fall of 2021, there were 18. There was just rainfall after rainfall saturating those materials. And in doing so, it makes the material heavier. It effectively almost floats the material a little bit in terms of reducing its strength. That's an, wow. a simpler way to think about it. You've got extra weight and less strength in that slope. In the case of British Columbia, that followed on from the heat dome summer, which was extremely high heat and drought, which then led to more fires, forest fires than normally are encountered. And when forest fires happen, they both remove vegetation that helps stabilize slopes, but they also make the soil respond to rainfall in a different way. Yeah. So those things have all led to a confluence of basically a perfect storm of things that happened. And so after those events in November of 2021, every single piece of infrastructure leading from Vancouver to the rest of Canada was cut off due to slope failures due to bridge washouts, due to washouts of the roads themselves and the railways. Every part of our infrastructure was cut off for some period of time with significant influence on people living in the area, in particular, more remote communities, First Nations communities that were cut off for long periods of time. So that's not so much the geomechanics and the rock mechanics, but that's the bigger scale geohazard risk management that we have to think about. And we have to think about ways to identify future plans. How do we make those communities more emergency ready? How do we try and create at least lifeline infrastructure that will be more resilient to those types of events? Again, we don't have enough money to do it for everything, but we have to be more, I think, realistic and smart about how we think about infrastructure and how we make it more resilient into the future. So that to me is one of the biggest things we're facing is how we respond to these big hazards, how we fund them and how we make sure that there's focus on 
not only the big cities, but all the communities who may be affected. So it's a big thorny problem that we have to keep working on. I think it's such a huge compounding problem. And it's such a problem that's also so unprecedented. At the very start of that answer, when you talked about the UK, that goes a counterintuitive to what we think about rock stability, that it was actually drying, that was causing these slumps, right? You usually think, okay, a high volume of water and saturation, that's going to lead yeah. to failure. But to see the opposite is just something very different than we'd originally think. And being a Vancouverite myself and being in BC, we're still recovering from those floods. Some communities were completely decimated. All of our area, our low-lying area, is mostly farmland. They were all completely flooded. So we had huge economic problems within that, but we also had small remote communities that were completely isolated and were isolated for months. We're still dealing with a huge amount of damage, a huge amount of infrastructure replacement and repairment. And so I think you're correct. I think infrastructure management and risk mitigation is probably where the public should be the most aware of and probably what's going to affect the public the most, truthfully. There's an interesting process going on in the United States at the moment. The federal government put in place funding, which the short form for is protect, but it's basically funding that's focused on asking all of the departments of transportation for each individual state to come up with plans to make their infrastructure more resilient. Once a state identifies a way to determine what are critical lifelines and what are the measures required to make things more resilient, once they've made the budgets, then they can apply to the federal government for funding. But they have to show the resilience metrics that they're addressing, and they have to show how they're going to try and address climate change in this funding. In the case of North America, that's a really leading kind of way of thinking about it and getting people to start working on it. Back in my career in 2007, I spent a sabbatical in Norway. And in Norway at that time, they had something called GeoExtreme. And the GeoExtreme project was again funded by the federal government and was really focused on how they might modify some of their infrastructure, their road and culvert infrastructure and bridge infrastructure to consider future models of, of climate change. I think it's had a significant influence on them because they started at that time really thinking about if we're changing a roadway or if we're building a new one, what do we have to consider? So there are lots of really great examples of other jurisdictions that have started to think about this or are working on this. So it's a matter of time before I think we all start to really address this on a bigger scale. But yeah, absolutely, the public should be concerned about this in so many ways. And knowing from friends who lived in Vancouver, the effect of the heat dome as well, like that yeah. was really remarkably hard for many people, I think, and led to many fatalities, I think. It was a scary yeah. natural phenomenon that you're like, this is terrifying that this is climate change. But I do think yeah. the two programs that you just mentioned are fantastic, especially the one in the U.S. that is open data from each state. So you have 50 mm -hmm. states that are actually actively working on it independently and then can share data. So that goes back to the public data set that I think is remarkable. That's what we need. So if there are any listeners to your podcast who are interested, the probably the most accessible data set at the moment that you can look at, and it's really focused on public understanding, not scientist or engineering understanding. It's based on science and engineering, but it really is set out so that the public can understand it is in California. So the Cal Transportation Department has a really great website with all sorts of things you can look at about climate change and resilience and how they're working on it. And then the state of Colorado is also doing some really interesting work that they're making publicly available. Thank you, Jean. I'll post that into this episode. I'll embed it. We're going to pivot a little bit from Geo, GeoEng because 
you've been a professor for 25 years. You've had an extensive teaching career. In your career as a professor, is there one topic that you love to teach? Is it an aha moment of your students? Is it a foundation theory that's the backbone of their education? Is there anything that comes top of mind? If you asked me this question every five years, it would be a different answer. It's changed over the years significantly. So in the early days, it was all the aha moments associated with technical things. And certainly over the years, the work we've done with LIDAR and change detection, we can produce these beautiful maps showing how things have changed on slopes, where failures happened, where it's landed. And the fact we're using laser systems to do that has always been really interesting for the students. And more recently, we're working with game engines, the engines that are behind games and behind even videos and films, where I remember the first time I really realized this was during, during the movie Brave. But in the movie Brave, there's some t scenes where the young heroine is running and her hair is just flowing. And then she meets this big bear and, and the big bear's hair is flowing. That's all physics engines behind that. So that animation is all based on physics engines. Working with Rob Harrop in our department, he's always been on the computer end and the game engine end of things. He and I talked about this. And so we've been using physics engines to simulate rock falls. So that's also been a fun thing because they can see the rock starting and then it yeah. breaking up as it comes down slope. And this has led to some actually some other research we're doing now. But now the biggest aha moments from my perspective and the things that I love teaching the most at the moment are two. I can't boil it down, down to one. It's two. Okay, so <laughs> thank you. So the first is in, in second year. But in second year, we changed the second year course, which is focusing on introducing students to the ways that they as future geological engineers might engage in the industry across many different components of the industry. That's the focus of this course. Half of the assignments are, are computational assignments. How do you calculate this? How do you work this engineering thing out? But the other half are workshops that we've developed to focus on how you communicate with the public, how you evaluate what's a catastrophe or a hazard. What is the language you're using? How are you conveying scientific information? How are you viewing the world around you as a future professional engineer in this case? To me, those are actually the most interesting and fun teaching things I do now because I love seeing each time how the students respond to those things and the work that they do in those things. So that's totally different than 25 year, years ago me would have said. I wouldn't have said that. And I think that's a key thing. So this past year, we included some of our undergrads in a graduate program, a graduate course on, on geohazards. And we talked a lot about some of the human interactions with hazards and the way we communicate with the public. And all the students said, this is stuff we should be learning and we haven't been learning and we need to be learning. So that's an evolution for sure over those 25 years for me in terms of what we need to expose our students to before they graduate so that they're prepared and already thinking about those forward-facing communications with the public. So that's one part of the aha moments. And the other part of the aha moments are really a field course that I've run since 2003 in the undergrad program and more recently in our professional master's program. We have a professional master's on earth and energy leadership. But the field course is where we look at the mining cycle or the resource cycle. We look at it from the beginning of how do you even examine the land? How do you consider say, First Nations' use of the land? How do you consider other use of the land? How do you consider the impacts that you might have, even at the exploration stage? Then you move through exploration, you move through all the permitting processes, and then if the project is permitted, you then do the extraction work and then the processing work, and you often generate waste. 
So in that whole cycle, how do you divert more of that waste to something usable? How do you reduce the impact on the land? How do you communicate with anybody who might be impacted by the project? And from not trying to force the project on people to really get them to understand and to see whether they really truly do support the project and will see some benefit from the project. That field course at both the undergrad and grad is is my absolutely favorite teaching. The light bulbs that go on are remarkable every day on that trip. We have fantastic companies who take us onto their sites. They explain very clearly the challenges they're facing, the innovations that they've made, or the areas where they don't really know a solution yet. And that's something that really is amazing for the students to be exposed to both from the perspective of those companies, but also as a group of students, because the discussions that they have every evening in our sessions after the day are amazing. That's actually my really favorite teaching to do is those, is those field schools. Jean, you have no idea how much that warms my heart to hear that those both of those programs exist because it's such a beautiful way of thinking about geology and geological engineering. That is the type of teaching and the type of conversation that needs to happen because it's a holistic view and it's a community view of resource extraction and resource management. Does this community actually need it? Will it benefit the community? How are we going to impact the natural environment? What are we going to do about that? How are we going to make this waste useful? Because unfortunately, we still are a resource-based society. And in Canada, we're a resource-based country. Our entire <laughs> wealth is based on resources, but we do need to be more responsible with that. So that holistic view and to see that so young for second years, undergraduate and grad students. That's absolutely amazing. I was touched briefly at the very start, but also as an aside, what absolute nerd like dream that you can <laughs> understand landslides by using gaming technology. Two perfect things that you love in life have come and met together that you're like, yes, I love rocks. I love video games. And now I can do both for my job. That's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> I have to tell you, Alexis, I'm not a huge gamer. Rob is. Rob and his family are. My my kids always wanted to be gamers, and we always kept them away from it, thinking, too much screen time, too much screen time. And then here I am. (laughs) So I remember an aha moment at a conference where I talked about the beginning of this work and how we were using at the time Minecraft to create our, our world, our world. And I remember all the parents in the audience going, oh, my goodness. Okay, so our kids can keep playing Minecraft, you know, <laughs> so. It's finally given the go ahead. But your kids are probably like, come on, mom, like now you do this for job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they didn't have much of a video game childhood and they played them a little bit, but not a huge amount. Whereas it, that's really Rob's contributions to our research. And it, it's fascinating. And it really draws in a lot of fantastic students who maybe aren't as focused on the field and are interested in the computer side. And I think that merging, again, of technologies and environments and worldviews even is really good. It's really essential in our field that we can't stay in our I know the outcrop or I know the rockfall or I know the physics engine or game engine. We need to bring it all together. As creatures of habit and creatures of geology, I think you do want to stay within your lane. You're like, no, I would like to only look at my clay and I don't want to look at anything else. So I think it's really nice to have a mix of both and a mix of two worlds. So it's just such a cool part of research. And I also see that it's just going to take off. Like this is the beginning of it. Who knows what's going to change with AI and artificial intelligence. I think that is going to be a whole nother game changer to these models. So the other thing I wanted to say was I think that this professional master's program I mentioned a moment ago, it's focused on people who are working and who want to remain working and then they can do a part-time 
It's not really an MBA, but it's similar in terms of the course load and the content. And I created it when I was head because talking to alumni and talking to companies and talking to students, there, there really is this almost disconnect between what you said. We need these resources. We thrive from these resources increasingly with the critical minerals required to drive the green energy change. Those are all extracted from the earth. And in some circumstances, they have fairly significant environmental and physical impact. And so that trade-off between those challenges of needing those minerals but or metals and then also trying to extract them is a key component. Similarly, getting the still required oil and gas across the country. And I don't think we're weaning ourselves from that anytime soon. I think we're, we need that. So that debate between pipelines and then oil by rail, for example, these are all trade-offs that we have to make and we have to recognize. And if society says no to everything, then we stagnate. We can't do the things we have to do. So there has to be this balanced perspective as much as possible on these challenges. So this program, it attracts lawyers, it attracts environmental scientists, it attracts uh, engineers and scientists. We've had people working for the Alberta Energy Regulator as stakeholder components. We have currently in our current cohort, a person who works on First Nations advocacy and resource projects, another woman who's a lawyer in Africa doing similar work. We, it's a very international program, and it's also a very broadly based program. The whole idea was, how do we have the conversations we need to have to understand as much as we can all these different political and policy and human factor components? And how do we help the resource projects that should go ahead, go ahead? Because we keep putting on the brakes on everything these days, it seems. And there's got to be some things that on balance have enough benefit to offset the cost that always comes with any of these projects. And I think that's another example of this idea that you need to bring many people to bear on problems and recognize that there are some projects that shouldn't go ahead. The environmental and social costs are much higher than the benefits. So we need to have that trade-off and we need to have people who are able to lead in that. It's really cool to see that intersectionality between not just science, but also like economics and legal and First Nation and community. I think that you can only really make those decisions to be like no go for a project to be like, we're actually not going to do that. The cost is too much. If you do have a broad base of understanding that it's a legal, economic and community based, not just purely science. You've been busy. Jean, you've created so many <laughs> programs because we're about to yeah. talk about another program that you created. And this is a wonderful new program in the department. It is that you have created these EDI workshops with your second year GeoEng students. Could you walk us through how these workshops work? What goes into it? Absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you. It's a really important program from my perspective. And We've run them, I've run this four times now. So I've captured all the students currently in program and continuing to offer it at the second year level. It's motivated by the unfortunate reality that some of the things that I was putting up with or just joking in the early start of my career is still happening to our students, unfortunately. So young women coming back from field programs in the summer, graduate students being out on drill sites or other locations in the field, most often in the field, construction projects exploration projects, drilling projects, where they were being harassed or they were being belittled or their ideas were certainly not being considered. I remember speaking to a one graduate who was out by about a year and she was on a mindset that we were actually visiting on the undergrad field program. And I said, how's it going? And she said, oh, fantastic. And I said, where is so-and-so who was her best friend in undergrad? She had a great 
interesting career. And the student I was, or the former student I was speaking with said she decided to stay out of the industry. She's now going to teacher's college because she couldn't put up with the field. She couldn't put up with what was happening in the field and she didn't feel she had support or any coping mechanism. So she just left. And she left after her summer experiences. That's maybe three, maybe two, four month experiences. And that was enough for her to go. I don't want this field. Yeah. And unfortunately, I'm hearing that still in so many cases, so many circumstances, unfortunately. So that is what initiated this thinking about it. Meanwhile, I have two daughters who are in, have been in engineering or now in graduate school, and one of them did some work in the field as well and came back with stories about things. And she mostly didn't have a lot of impacts personally, thankfully, but there were a number of other young women that she was working with who did. She was telling me some of these stories, and she was probably more free to tell me those stories than some of the students maybe who are a little more reticent to share all the details often. But through those two, that confluence of these, this feedback, I thought, oh my goodness, this is not acceptable. It never has been acceptable, but now I'm at the point in my career where I don't care how the men or the perpetrators view me. I don't care. And a lot of young women do care because it's their career and they see no way out of it. So I thought, I need to do something about this. I've always tried in a quiet way to do something about it and support young women. But now I need to do something much more overt about it. One of the things is this set of workshops with the students in second year. And part of it is I, I start the workshops with a fairly short presentation about the current statistics related to the number of women engaging in STEM studies, the number of women remaining in STEM professions, the leaky pipeline problem of people just not finding career advancement or career success, even though they might love the, the topic or the area, they just aren't finding that. So leaving or realizing it's not at all what they want anyway. And so there's many reasons for the leaky pipeline, but most of it seems to be the non-inclusive workforce and the non-inclusive work environment for people. So I start with those sort of statistics, which is often surprising to the students in the class. And I use my personal example of I'm the first in many things that, that happened in my career. And now in our program, we're 50% women in the science program and the engineering program and in the graduate program. It's pretty amazing how things have changed in a relatively short time. So we talk about that. And then I give them five different written scenarios. And I purposely set it up so that there are three students at each table with a written scenario. They read the scenario to themselves and they write a first response to the scenario, a personal response to the scenario, really any response to the scenario that they would like to record. It's all anonymous. And so they read the scenario, they write their response, and then they talk as a group. Those groups are completely randomly set up. And every single time we change to a scenario, they're with different people. They're never with the same people twice. It's always mixing people up. They talk about the scenario and then they write another response at the end, indicating what came out of that discussion. And then at the end of the session after it, we open the floor for discussion about it so that if there's any issues that have arisen or any questions they have, and we can try and address them then. I also offer that if they want to talk to me at any time afterwards, they can do so confidentially. Then I have them fill out a final document, which is a reflection on how the session went, what they learned, what else they'd like to see in a future session, those kinds of things. How the workshop works. And then we, I've run it, I think, as I said, four times. And every time it's been a different response from the class. It's been actually really interesting. It's so important, Jean, what you're doing. I love that you're doing it with a combination of both men and women, because I think that is such a key component that everyone Absolutely. needs to be aware with it. And if it's not like directly affecting you, sometimes it's hard to see. So it's wonderful to have those workshops where men can see these true life scenarios and to understand what's happening to their women, colleagues and friends. 
and even mentors, like their bosses yeah. have gone through this. Yeah. So it's just a wonderful program. And just thank you so much for creating it and being loud, supporting this in a loud way. Because I know when I first started, I started working in mining when I was 19. And I didn't think I was so young. I didn't think that I could be loud. And but you shared this beautiful paper with me before this interview that you and your daughter co-wrote, which is a beautiful thing in itself. But thank you. Part of that paper, what really resonated with this idea of toughness in the field. And I thought one idea of being able to be a geologist was you had to go into the field one. To work in the field, you had to be tough. Men were automatically tough, but as a woman, you had to prove that you were tough. And being tough included taking a fair amount of sexual harassment or, mm -hmm. or sexism. I just thought that was par for the course. And I thought that I was proving my toughness by being able to withstand harassment. And that's an absolutely ridiculous idea. But I was 19 and I didn't think you could complain because I thought it was just part of the culture. So it's just wonderful that you're having this discussion with young women and young men when they first start their career and they first start their education. And I think it's very sad that we still have to do that, but it's a wonderful yeah. thing that we have it. That makes me really sad to hear that because it is the reason so many people don't love their jobs when they could do, right? That putting up with everything is just insidious. And it's so unfortunate. It's really unnecessary. And it's so pervasive still, unfortunately. I'm just joking. Ha ha. No, you're not. I think the evolution I've seen in general terms in the industry is increasing focus on having EDI committees or having EDI surveys or having EDI policies and companies. And I think most people are relatively early stage in this. They're still developing this as they go. But over time, I've seen this evolution where people are now looking at inclusivity. So Let's attract people to the business. Let's get them interested in the business, but let's keep them. Let's yeah. not drive them away. And so the inclusivity is the focus that Katie, my daughter, and I have had on this and now we're continuing to work on. But the inclusivity part is the part that's, that we have to get right. We have to make everybody with their diverse perspectives, their interesting ideas that may be different than yours, but they should not be discounted because they're different than yours. They enrich the environment. They're the ideas you should be listening to. You should be trying to make your, in the engineering case, you should be making your engineering products suitable for the diverse people who might use them. You should have these diverse perspectives. The statistics show that anytime you have a more diverse board or a more diverse working group, you get a better product, you get a better outcome, you get more ideas. Some of them may not be relevant, but don't shut it down because someone's younger than you or different than you. Like that's just not acceptable in my mind at all. So I'm really glad to see, sorry, you got me on my soapbox. Couch, oh, no, but no. You, you stay on it. <laughs> so, it's fantastic, Gene. Stay on it as long as you want. <laughs> Thank you. The increasing focus on inclusivity is a key part of where we have to go. Unfortunately, I still think in many of the companies at senior levels, there are women and men who just don't understand the importance of it. Maybe they, they don't have kids who are going through it like I am, or they haven't had the personal experience of it. They might see some general level, but they don't have that personal experience. So what you're doing with collecting people's real stories is also key because the more people hear about real stories and hear about real experiences, the more hopefully we start to become more empathetic to one another and understand why this is so important. It's, it's a key part of where we have to go to attract people and keep people in the industry who can contribute a huge amount. I couldn't agree more. I think inclusivity is so important. And I think the one thing that we're missing right now is making the environment safe, especially yeah. in a field-based industry such as geological engineering or geology. It's so field-based and it's currently not safe for everybody. And I'm saying this as a white woman 
just I don't have the same level of oppression on my shoulders as some of my peers, right? And some Absolutely. of the people that have to go through different layers of oppression. And I don't have that. I only have sexism as being a white woman in geology. And still for me, it's an unsafe place. So I couldn't yep. imagine if I had an intersectional identity. I mentioned briefly this paper that you shared. The paper, it is called... <laughs> Geotechnical Engineering Steps Towards Effective Gender Inclusivity in Our Profession. This paper you've written with your daughter. Yeah, she's amazing. She's remarkable. Her way of thinking about these things has educated me so much as well. Like it's been amazing working with her on this because she really has a lot of friends who have, as you said, different intersectionalities. And most of the people that I know at my age and the friends I would have had at her career stage didn't necessarily, weren't maybe comfortable with some of those intersectionalities and identifying them. Whereas now, People hopefully are feeling they can be more authentic. And so Katie has brought all sorts of knowledge to me that I wouldn't have in any other way. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's so cool that you guys are writing this paper together and it's just such a beautiful mother-daughter moment. This paper that you wrote, it, it's a fantastic paper because it outlines these workshops. It outlines some of these scenarios that you have run and gives examples so you can read about it. It's only seven pages. It's really accessible. You do not have to be a, an engineer or a geologist to read it. So please give it a read, but it walks you through the different scenarios that are all based on real life interviews. And then it gives us best practices for creating this more inclusive workspace. Could you walk us through some of these best practices, Jean? Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. I think probably the biggest best practice is making sure that people before they go in the field, agree to a field assignment, are fully briefed on what's included both from a, an, a living environment, a working environment, what kind of company or research support there will be if they run into challenges, how long they'll be there, how physical the work will be, because you can't really make an informed consent to do that kind of work without having that level of briefing. And I don't think many people get that level of briefing, even myself. I've changed a lot the way that I engage with my graduate students about we're going to be doing this and here's all the things included. Are you comfortable? Is there anything we can do to make sure that this works for you? My field projects are usually a week or two. They're not months in an environment, for, which for some people is very challenging. So that idea of really laying out what will be involved and what the mechanisms are if things aren't working the way that the person is comfortable with or if there's any kind of harassment, what are the steps for them to move forward with getting company support is a really key part of it. And then the corollary of that is when you're working, what are the consequences of saying no to a field project? Because if you don't feel that you can say no, then even if you're not comfortable, you still accept the assignment and you maybe don't even bring up some of the challenges that you foresee. So what are the consequences on your career of saying no? And when I've talked to more senior people in our industry about this, they all say, you shouldn't be in the industry if you can't hack it, basically. That, again, makes me so very sad because I think there are so many realities for different people of how happy they will be to be away for a period of time in certain environments. There's got to be a place throughout our industry in different ways that people can contribute without feeling that's what they have to put up with. Again, put up with, right? To me, one of, that's one of the biggest learnings is how you indicate what will be happening potentially, how you indicate what should be done if things don't go well, and what it'll mean for your career. And I think for some people, if they knew that the company had that philosophy that if you can't hack it, you shouldn't be here then they should change companies, not leave the industry, but change companies and find one that's more amenable to that. So increasingly, I'm seeing companies that are 
founded by women, have executive committees that are women. In those cases, I think that they're more open to some of these conversations. They're open to job sharing ideas. They're open to mat leave considerations and pat leave considerations. They're open to all these other ideas about how to make the work-life balance work for people. Early in my career that you didn't talk about work-life balance at all. You just talked about work. Yeah. And it's an, an essential part of what we've had to, what, where we need to be and where we should be more in this work-life balance, how you support people with all different realities, all different selves in this profession. So that's one of the biggest things in my mind is that informed consent and knowing where to go. I think the other thing is creating company, company policies for both your company and also for anybody you work with, maybe as a subcontractor, about your lack of tolerance for any of these kinds of things. That's a key part of it in my mind, a best practices kind of thing, almost like maybe the public aren't aware of this, but there are these international standards for safety and quality and work. And I think we should have an international standard for safety and field work for people of all different intersectionalities. Absolutely. And then I think the other thing that we suggested, there are quite a few things, but one of the other things I think that may resonate is in most projects you have at the start of any meeting or any workday, what's called a safety share. If you're working on a landslide site, you may, if it rains, it may be slippery. Or if you hear this kind of sound, that means this might be happening. Or there's a lot of things that you go through and say, here's what you should be aware of in your workplace. Here's the things that may happen in the workplace as a result of these different activities. And here's what you should do about it. And we don't ever have a physical harassment or inclusivity share ever. And we should have inclusivity shares. We should say, in this day, here's some of the challenges that may arise. Here's ways you can be an ally to people. Here's ways you can better communicate with people. Here's ways you can include people. In my mind, if we could go to something where you had both a safety share and an inclusivity share, we would be so much further ahead with everybody thinking about it. I love that idea of inclusivity share. Like for years of safety meetings and safety briefs, I have never heard of someone talk about inclusivity or anything EDI related. I think what she mentioned at the very beginning of understanding what does the fieldwork actually entail? It sounds simple. And maybe from someone who's outside of the field, they're like, okay, that doesn't seem like a big deal. But I've had fieldwork that I've gone in and they're like, yep, we're going to send you to the woods. You'll be fine. You're going to go out for six weeks. And you're like, okay, sick. Awesome. And then you come out and you're like, okay, I'm one of two women. We're living in a camp with 50 men. We have communal showers. Yes. I'm again, 19 years old. And I am now in this kind of communal bathing situation with a bunch of older men. And and I'm honestly, frankly, very uncomfortable with this and a little bit scared. Right. Absolutely. And I've had situations where it'd be like, you're going to work underground and you're going to work with this one guy that you've never met before. And you're going to be really in this enclosed small space and you're going to be in a remote area where you have no communication and no nothing. And I remember sitting there to be like, okay, what if he attacks me? You have your wrench on your thigh. If you don't know those parameters of your work, of your field work, it just can end up becoming a, a big stress on you because you instantly go there. And that man who I went, who did the survey with me, he was a lovely man, but I had Mm -hmm. never met him. He was a complete stranger and everything in my life had put me to be like, okay, you could potentially be a threat. He ended up being a wonderful person and no threat to me. And same with the people that I worked at that mining camp. It ended up being completely okay. They were very respectful with the communal showers, but it was an uncomfortable thing that I had no idea that I was walking into. Just the fact that could be outlined is super powerful. 
in itself. What is also more powerful is that idea of field work and that what if I say no to field work? Because mm -hmm. we're taught when we're field work based, I'm a leaky pipeline graduate. I'll be open with that, that I, mm -hmm. I ended up leaving geology and I loved my industry and I loved working with IODP. But part of my work with IODP is that it's a two month on sailing position. I did that for six years of sailing two months in the middle of the ocean and then two months off. But I realized I got to a position that I was like, I think I would like a family. And I mm -hmm. think I would like to settle down. That's something that maybe management doesn't consider that women who are working in field remote situations sometimes have to leave because they want to become moms and start their family. And absolutely, that's so important that you guys encapture that with the policy of no, of what happens to my career if I say no. Challenging this idea of if you can't cut field work, you're not yeah. appropriate in this field. It's completely ridiculous, absolutely. right? Like, absolutely. I, absolutely. I, it's absolutely fantastic that you're doing, Jean. And Thank we you. have one last question. In terms of representation, we've talked about it. It's obviously changed since you began because, and that largely is because of people like you who are loud oh. and who are making changes and who are standing up for women and men who are working within these fields. And you represent one of the first cohorts of women working within STEM and trades fields. And obviously it's gotten better, but I still think that we have a lot of ways to go. What would be your message and what would be something that you would say to young women and men who are just starting within the industry now? Really great question. And again, I would have a different answer every five years of my career. So <laughs> I'll address it from this point. There is a huge amount to still be done or to be done in our field, the kind of green energy revolution, the response to climate change, the ability to think about societal responses to and impacts from resource projects, et cetera. There's an enormous range of talents and intelligence that we need in our field. We should be encompassing more diverse groups within this field, absolutely, so that we get a much broader basis and benefit from those tremendous range of different ideas and worldviews that people will bring to this. We'll be better off by far if we can do that. So if you're at all interested in this field, try it out. Don't feel that sort of the comments that we've had about fieldwork are, they may put you off, unfortunately, and in which case, absolutely, the field may not be for you, unfortunately. But Actually, to that point, one thing I wanted to say is like a bunch of the mining companies now are creating family houses on their properties. So for people who are in fly-in, fly-out situations, they're able to bring their ch young children with them, sometimes with their partner, sometimes with a caregiver, but they're able to bring their young children to site. And the site has set up daycare facilities and set up environments where people can be at site with kids. Things are changing. And so some of the early stuff career things for me are not at all the same. But as we said, there's more work to be done. Anyway, the field is amazing. As, as you just said, Alexis, you can work from home on a computer. You can be in the field. You can do all sorts of, you can be in a chemistry lab if you're doing geochemistry. You can do so many different things in the geoscience, geological engineering world. You can travel as much as you want. I've traveled all over the world on a very regular basis because I love to do that. And I've been able to do that as part of my job because Landslides are everywhere. Mine subsidence is everywhere. So I think that in my mind, it's been an incredibly rewarding career and environment in which I've been able to, as you've heard, bring together a lot of different things to try and address some of the problems. And it's really an environment where you can innovate, where you can 
thrive, where you can find different paths to your career. My career has changed over the time in terms of my ability to still do what I love, but find different ways to do it. And in my case, being an academic, for my age particularly, being an academic, when there weren't job sharing, when there weren't these other opportunities, has been the way I've been able to stay in the field, have a great career, and also have two kids. So I'd say there's a path for everybody, and it's such a great field. It's so interesting. There's so much to do in our natural world around us to, that I think hopefully people will consider it. Thank you very much for bringing us back to the light, because I think like sometimes we do get bogged down of just because you do need to have that discussion, that realistic discussion. Mm -hmm. I think you're right that this is such a wonderful experience. Yes, it sounds like I've had some scary field experiences. Mm -hmm. I've also gone to Antarctica twice and I've sailed around the world. That's insane. I got yeah. to see penguins and humpback whales and have coffee with whales and be like, yep, another Tuesday at the office. That's yeah. insane. And I love that amazing. Out to the beauty of our field and the different ways that you can do geology or engineering, right? There's so many pathways for you and you can pivot and change along your career. Jean, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. I can't wait to share this with everybody. Just thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thanks so much. As I said at the beginning, it's fantastic that you're doing this and I hope you have great success to getting the word out as broadly as we can and the guests that you have, I think will be fascinating to follow. So thank you so much for this and good luck with this endeavor of yours, Alexis. Thank you so much, Jean. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye guys. Ta-ta for now. See you later at next week. Bye. <laughs> Bye.